These verses, as we began to look at them two weeks ago, turn our attention to the reality of spiritual warfare in the midst of this life. That while we are redeemed believers, praise God, that that's the case, uh, God has left us, even as redeemed believers, now in the middle of a battlefield. It's a, it's a real note of realism that the scripture gives us. Uh, and we're called upon by God to live with the same sort of caution that we would be having if we were in an actual physical battle zone. You know, you have a special alertness, a special kind of sensitivity, a special apprehension perhaps, uh, if you're actually on a front line or you're in the midst of a battle area. And so God's been challenging us about that. I guess the question is, how cautious are you walking as a disciple? Uh, It's easy as a believer to become naively uncautious. And God wants us to be cautious as believers. Last time, we focused on verse 8 and uh, introducing us to some issues related to the enemy of our souls in this spiritual battlefield, Satan. We studied how he tempts us and attacks us directly, and at times indirectly through the flesh, through the world. We looked at several phrases about that attack. We talked about Satan prowling around and how the Greek describes that as a ceaseless, restless pacing. And the context tells us it's like a lion caged. And if you've ever been at the zoo, you see that sort of ceaseless moving around, moving around, waiting. And that's, that's the picture God gives us of this enemy. And we need to understand he prowls around like that for one overarching purpose. He wants to find victims. That's the reality of it. Uh, God says that in that prowling around, that Satan roars. And we need to learn, teach ourselves to hear the roar. If he roared like a lion, we wouldn't have to teach ourselves much. It would be very evident when you heard the roar. Uh, But we need to teach ourselves, what does the roar sound like? And these are the roars that ask God to just make amplified decibel-wise when you see it or you encounter it, so that it sounds like a lion roar to you. Uh, Satan roars in every attack on biblical authority, every attack on biblical morality, every attack on sound doctrine. Those are roars... From the enemy. He also roars in any message anyone in a pulpit delivers that encourages complacency and carnality in the Christian walk. That focuses your attention more on how to feel good rather than to be a disciple growing. Those are roars from the enemy. And if you condition yourself to see that, it ought to just And it might help if God, in fact, in some way does raise the decibel level for you. When you hear something, you say, wait, wait, roars. I've got to be careful here. I've got to be careful. We also saw that Satan is interested in devouring people. And that's a very graphic sort of word. And he does it in two ways. In terms of the person who has never come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he devours them by trying to work to keep them from being saved. And as a result... Keeping them from salvation murders them very legitimately for eternity, much worse than a temporal murder might be. And that's why Jesus in John chapter 8 describes him as a murderer from the beginning. 
I mean, his intention is far more than snuffing out a physical life. He wants to snuff out a spiritual walk in life and keep you from finding life, finding the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And so he operates that way. When it comes to the believer, Satan is operating to devour them. He can't take away eternal life from them, but what he can do is to work to keep them from growing. Work to keep them from being the disciples God has called them to be. He wants to keep the believer from being fruitful and growing in Christ's likeness. And essentially, in doing so, he negates your life. And more, almost importantly, he keeps you from being any threat to his agenda with the unsaved. Because, brothers and sisters, if you're not growing, if you're not surrendered disciple, you are no threat to Satan's intention for the unsaved out there. Those unsaved even in your own families. No one has ever been brought to Christ because of the witness of carnality and lukewarmness. Only the witness of zeal, surrender, desire to be a disciple, growing, people who presented their bodies a living sacrifice. And so Satan's agenda in removing your fruit is to keep you from interfering with his harvest. Finally, we discovered that his intention is not merely to cause us to stumble. He wants to devour us, to destroy us. He's not interested in just getting you to stumble. He's interested in getting you to follow a lifestyle of complacency. And a lifestyle where you take choices that then affect you, corrupt you, injure you. That's his great intention. He wants us neutralized. Well... That was what we covered last time uh, in much more detail, obviously, or at least I think we did because it took longer to go over it. But uh, uh, today we'll pick up our study because the Bible not only introduces us to this enemy that we're supposed to be cautious about in this battlefield, but it also begins to introduce us to some of the strategy to withstand the enemy of our souls. And it also gives us some promises uh, in these verses that I want to look at. And we'll begin by looking at some strategies. Because in these verses, verse 8 and then into verse 9, we discover four strategies that God lays out for us when we're on the front lines. And by the way, you're always on the front line. You're always in the battlefield. There is no place that isn't front line as far as the spiritual walk is concerned. The first strategy, he begins verse 8 by saying, Be sober-minded and be watchful. We will not do well in this battlefield, if we are not sober-minded and watchful. Uh, This word in the ESV translated sober-minded, nepho, uh, in the Greek, means literally to be free of distorted intoxicant. It's not so much talking about uh, alcohol, although certainly applications there, but uh, the issue is more the description of someone who's dazed. And you know, you can be dazed by a lot of things. You can be dazed, certainly from drinks and drug. You can be dazed because you're in amusements that daze you. Uh, you, By the way, the word amuse comes out of the Greek word amuse, meaning to think or reflect, ah, meaning without. Amusement literally means to cut your mind out, to get rid of any kind of musing, any kind of reflection. And... uh, 
our, our brains can get dazed to the degree that we saturate them with amusement too much. Uh, they can get dazed uh, if we get the wrong kind of mind focus, let things run on in our minds that eventually, you know, if you're out on the front lines like Walk and Point, uh, you don't want to be thinking about the ball game. You're, you want to be watching what's going on around you or you're likely to be dead, you know. And that's sort of that sense of urgency that's emerging here. He says, listen, I want you to be sober-minded. Ephesians 5.18, and talking about the Holy Spirit, gives us a similar picture where it says, be not drunk with wine for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Again, not so much, although there's application, not so much an issue about drinking per se, is what's controlling your mind, what's controlling your life. Now, the Holy Spirit needs to be controlling our lives. Back in the first chapter of First Peter, in verse 13, it said, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's revisiting once again something we looked at some time ago as we were in that first chapter. God says, listen, the strategy you have to have is you have to be sober-minded. You will never do well in this battlefield to the degree that your mind is not sobered. Doesn't mean you have to be straight-laced, sober, and sad. That's not the idea. But the idea is that you're not allowing your mind to be lulled, either by artificial means or by choices, into a lack of awareness of what's going on around you. We need to be alert. He also says we're to be not only sober-minded, but we are to be watchful. The Greek word here literally means staying awake, being vigilant. They often used in the Greek language to describe someone whose job is standing guard duty. You know, staying awake in the battlefield or right close to it, so that you can be alert on behalf of the others that are getting a couple winks here to uh, let them know if there's any danger coming in. He says, I want you to be watchful. So what does that mean? That means, number one, I'm not much of a guard if I'm not expecting the enemy to try something. Right? The guard always expects the enemy's going to try something. They may hope it's not on their watch, but they always are expecting that the enemy's going to try something. And for you and I in this spiritual warfare... God says, I want you always expecting the enemy to do something. You know, don't get lulled into thinking, well, we're in a safe zone. There are are no safe zones here in this world. Uh, So be expecting the enemy to do something. Be expecting to encounter temptations just coming at you from the enemy through various means to get you to doubt God's word or to doubt God's intentions. Expect that the enemy is going to be assailing you with some thoughts to try to say, well, you just, you know, back off a little bit. You can put off full surrender. I mean, don't, don't, Romans 12, 1, I mean, that's, that's an ideal. Nobody lives that out, really, do they? And, you know, and after all, God loves you, so even if, you know, he's not going to love you any less because you're not living surrendered to him. And that's true, but he's going to cry a lot more over you because your life's going to be damaged by the sin and the refusal to fulfill his purpose and plan in your life. He cares enough about you to know that when you're not being who he's called you to be, you're damaging your life. Damaging it. And so, be alert. Expect these things. So my question to you in this first of these strategies, is that how you kind of approach your day-to-day walk? 
sober-minded, watchful, <laughs> making sure I'm alert, reminding myself I'm on the front lines, expecting the enemy to do something, so that when something happens, you say, aha, aha. <laughs> I, was, I was expecting that. Not the particular form, but I was expecting something. I was expecting something. Uh, so many people are defeated because they're not expecting anything. And by the time they are aware that something's happening, many times they've already stumbled. You know, so be expecting. Secondly, he says, I want you to choose to rest. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful, resist him. Verse 9, choose to resist when Satan attacks you. Literally, the word translated resist here means to take a stand. It's used in this way in the Greek language. It means when the battle's going on, swing your sword and fire your gun. Uh, I knew an individual dating myself a bit from uh, back to the Vietnam years. He was a sergeant there and out in some of the outlying camps, often attacked uh, during that war. And there were times when individuals who were there with them would, would, would just be so overcome and so despairing, they would just get inside the bunkers and not even come out and help to lay out a fire ground to try to protect them. They just wouldn't do anything, and they'd have to go in and almost threaten to shoot them so that they would come out and help everybody else by laying out the fire. Uh, that's sort of the image here, I think. God says, listen, there's a battle going on. Swing the sword. Shoot the gun. I mean, don't debate with yourself whether you're going to do that. Resist him. Choose a proactive, active warfare when the battle is actually happening around you. Don't roll up in a ball. Don't assume somebody else is going to lay out the fire. Uh, pull out your sword. Don't give in. Remember in Luke chapter 4, we are seeing actually in the different Gospels it's there, but Luke 4 is an example of the extended period of temptation, not the only one by the way, but an extended period of temptation of Satan on Jesus Christ at the beginning of his ministry. And of course Satan as the pattern was established from Genesis 3 onward, was calling into question God's truth or seeking to distort it. And, uh, and in each case, the temptations that were given to Jesus were responded to in this way. It is written, verse 4 of chapter 4 of Luke says, And Jesus answered him, It is written. And then later on, in verse 8, It is written. And then later on, in verse 12, it is said, or it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Why do we see that? Because he's showing us what it means to swing the sword. You pull it out. The sword is what's written. Remember Ephesians chapter 6 gives us that picture of the armor and the sword of the Spirit. So what are you supposed to, what's the fire you're supposed to be laying out there? You know, uh, what, what are you supposed to be doing? Using the word of God. That is your fire. There's no resistance to Satan that works with any other 
armament. You don't successfully deal with the stalking lion roaring because you try to be self-disciplined. You're no match, no matter what kind of self-discipline you try to show. You don't succeed because you raise your fists in a threatening manner. You know, Satan just kind of snickers. It's like, (laughs) you overcome you. You certainly don't overcome because you pull out a crucifix and be gone. Doesn't work that way, brothers and sisters. That's not the way. Uh, We can't resist unless we're using the word. The word is the offensive weapon. It is written. It is written. It is written. Now, by the way, since that's the case, a person is at a significant disadvantage in this spiritual warfare if they don't know much of the Word. Doesn't that make sense? It's not sincerity that gives you an advantage in the warfare. It's knowing the Word. One of the reasons that I work with young believers and seek to ground them in their faith is because, like a parent, they need somebody watching out for them because they don't know much of the Word yet. It doesn't matter how old they were chronologically when they turned to Christ. They don't know much of the Word. They are vulnerable. And they need somebody force-feeding the Word into them because that's your defensive mechanism. That's why the church prioritizes expositional teaching. That's your... We're trying to give you armament. You need to know what God has said. Because Satan is going to always be saying, well, has God really said? Or, oh, he doesn't really mean that, he means this. And your answer back is, the word. Do away with all of the other potential armaments. You'll get into battle and discover they don't help. They don't help. It's the word that is your protection. The third strategy says, resist him firm in your faith. At least that's the way the ESV translates it. Determined to stand firm in your faith when Satan's attacking you. Stereos in the Greek is translated firm in uh, in the ESV. It means to be standing immovable, not budging. The NIV translates that standing firm, actually uses that phrase. I think it's closer to the idea. Certainly, the King James Version, steadfast, means that. It doesn't just mean... It doesn't just mean being firm. It means standing in a particular fashion, steadfast. That's what God is wanting us to do. God calls for you and I to hold our ground in the face of Satan attacks. Now, by the way, the Bible gives us other responses to other types of problems. For example, if you're facing sexual temptation, God says, run, you know, flee the youthful lust. I mean... Don't stand there and try to resist it and say, well, I'm just not going to let this affect me. Run. Run as fast as you can. Uh, Get out of there. But if Satan's attacking you, there's nowhere to run. Nowhere. I mean, you're on the front line. Where are you going to go? You can't lessen it. So the answer is, no, no, I've got to face this head on. I've got to face him head on. I'm going to hold my ground. I'm not going to run away. But if I decide to hold my ground, it makes a difference how I choose to fight, doesn't it? Uh, uh, You hold your ground, you don't have the right right sword, you're in trouble. What are we using when we're standing our ground? Well, we fight using the sword of the word. We fight by refusing to budge from the truth of the scriptures. 
no matter how convincing an argument somebody may come up with, using worldly thinking to say, oh, well, this can't be true, or this, this has got to be dated, or this has to be not applicable to the contemporary society, or something else, you say, no, 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 this is, these are eternal words. Uh, you know, they stand, heaven and earth will pass away, this won't. Uh, no, th- these, are, these are cross-cultural, cross-trans history. Uh, they are applicable at all times and equally authoritative. Refuse to budge from the temptations to perhaps not be quite as righteous and holy in your life. Like, well, could it, would it really matter if I did this or that or just backed off a little bit? I remember somebody telling me one time, listen, uh, just don't be so serious about your faith. And I'm thinking, well, <laughs> you don't really have that option if you want to be growing as a disciple. There is no place to be that's not serious doesn't mean you have to be sad all the time. I don't always have a lot of emotion in my life. But, but God doesn't say, that, it's not that you're sad, it's just you're serious. How do you not take your faith serious? <laughs> How do you not say, I'm a serious believer? I, I take it seriously. He's the Lord. I'm here for a reason. And I will refuse that nagging thought that says, maybe in this situation, Romans 12.1 can be set aside for a little. Maybe in this situation, the lordship issue, presenting your body as a living sacrifice, I think, I think you can do something a little less than that. God will probably be satisfied with that. In fact, one of the great ways that the enemy seeks to undermine us is to drift, push us into thinking that God negotiates with us. You know, it's like, you know, well, if, if you'll do this much, I'll do this. Hey, God's not in negotiations with us. He's not, we don't, we don't bring anything to the table, brothers and sisters. His word is his word. It's like, no, I'm not negotiating. I said, well, wouldn't you be happier if I, if I, at least I wasn't living this type of life. I was looking like this. And God says, well, that other type of life was causing you a lot of wounds. This type isn't going to be any better. The only place I want you is to have presented your body as a living sacrifice, being a serious disciple with me as Lord of your life. That's the only safe place to be. So no, I'm not happy. So if you think I'm going to negotiate with you to get you to this position instead of here, negotiations are over. That's it. I'm not negotiating. I'm not pleased with you. I'm not pleased with you. So you're in this battlefield. Who are you going to listen to in the midst of the battle? I mean, you've got two options, really. In the battle, which you don't have any option about being in, but you've got options in the battle, you could decide, I think I'll believe my advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, as First John put it, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous, he's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. So one of the voices coming to us, and we're reading about it right here, is the Lord Jesus. He's saying, I'm your advocate. Uh, this, is, this, is what I, this is what you're supposed to do. The battle's going on. Do this. But there's another voice in the picture. And that is the voice not of the advocate, but the accuser. In Revelation chapter 12, it describes this lion that we're talking about, Satan. 
And it says this in verses 9 to 11, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them night and day before our God. All right. Advocate, accuser, who are you listening to in the midst of the battle that's going on? Who are you listening to? Everything short of surrendered discipleship is a message from the accuser, not from our advocate. All right. Uh, so who are you going to listen to? Who have you determined you're going to listen to if you're actually in that physical warfare and, and, and there's incoming and we see the people trying to attack and, you know... Who's going to deploy in a certain way? Who are you listening to to set you up for deployment? It's not something you try to decide in the midst of the battle. You sort of have that determined ahead of time. And then everybody goes where they're, where they're told because they're listening to this person. Who are you listening to? Who are you listening to? Is it going to be Christ or not? That's the bottom line. Advocate or accuser? By the way, there's not any other option. There's not like, another, there's not like a third voice. Because any voice coming from the world is ultimately the product of the prince of the air, prince of this world, Satan. Any voice coming from your old self, your old flesh, already was the product of all of that mess. So there's really not another option. Who will I listen to in the midst of the battle? And then he says, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. <laughs> Strategy number four, get realistic enough to know you're not the only one in the battle. Stop thinking, why me? Uh, and God's answer to that is, well, because I left you in this world. I left you in this battlefield. That's, it's not like you're being treated differently. All of them, my redeemed children, are left in the battlefield. You're not the only one. Brothers and sisters throughout the world and throughout history have all been facing this same enemy, the same battlefields. Hebrews 12 talks to us about that cloud of witnesses to the truth. First uh, Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to men. You know, our tendency is to say, well, that may, that may be sort of true, but I'm facing this temptation, which isn't common. I, I'm having a special... It's been tailor-made for me. Now, it's common. It's common. Uh, you may have spent a lot of time tailoring yourself to be particularly susceptible to it, but that's different. The, the temptation's common. Accept the fact you're not alone in the battle, which is a note of realism. Okay, so I choose to resist. I'm going to stand firm. I'm going to be sober-minded and watchful, and I'm going to be realistic. I'm not, God's not somehow let down on his side of the bargain because I'm in the midst of the battlefield. Nothing unique is happening to me that, not all, that the other brothers and sisters aren't also encountering in some form. All of that situates us to deal with the battlefield. But then he moves on. And he says, and after you, verse 10, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The battlefield's going on. He's left us in the midst of the battlefield. But he has not left us alone in the midst of the battlefield. 
People say, well, I'd like God to just have put a hedge around me. Well, I'd like that too, but there's no biblical merit to that. The Bible never promises that. But he promises, in the midst of the battlefield, I'll be there. Hebrews 13.5 says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Uh, it was my purpose that you're left here in this battlefield, but I'm there. I'm with you. My purpose isn't to get you out of it. My purpose is to enable you in it. He will be with us. He left us in the midst of the battlefield, but he's not left us alone. We have his powerful word. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Two remarkable resources that are supposed to make all the difference in the battle that's inescapable. Once again, inescapable. We can't, there's not like another option. We're in it. But those things are critical to us. And when we have God's word, and when we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, then 1 John 4, 4 makes sense where he says, he who's in you is greater than he who's in the world. Uh, it's a promise. He's not left us alone. If we feel the very fact we're in the battlefield shows God dropped his part of the ball, his part of the bargain, we're already defeated. Because then we begin to be resentful against God because he's not living up to his, what he was promising me. And my response to people like that is, oh, God never promised you that. A lot of false teachers promised you that. And life doesn't out, come out the way they promised. But God didn't promise you that. But he did promise you, never leave you, forsake you. He's given you his word, given you the indwelling Holy Spirit. He'll be with you. That's his promise. So how is he with us? What does he do in the midst of it? How does he work all of this stuff through? And he says, well... The God of all grace, after, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He makes promises to us. The battlefielding will last forever, is what basically they're saying. He will, in his own way and in his own time, restore us. Kartizo, in the Greek, means to put back into working order. I like that. Sometimes, when I've been in the battle, I don't feel like I'm in working order right at the moment. <laughs> I don't know about you. Beat up, you know, kind of, wow. And God says, hey, the brothers and sisters know that feeling. I'm the God of grace. I specialize in putting you back together again. Don't respond to God by saying, I think a better strategy is not let me be pulled apart. No. <laughs> He's not moving you out of the battlefield, but he says, I specialize in putting you back together again. And, and you're only going to be in this battlefield for a period of time. <laughs> you're going to suffer for a period of time. Although, quite frankly, most of us think it's been long enough. For <laughs> but he says, listen, uh, no, no, it, it's a little time. He says, so I am the God of all grace, and I will restore you. Have you discovered, by the way, that restoring in your heart at times? Come away from me and say, oh Lord, I couldn't have done anything with me, but you've, you, you restored me. What a, what a miracle. He will confirm us, starizo, which means literally to stabilize, to plant, to buttress. One of the Greek scholars said, you want to get a handle on this word, confirm. He replants the loose roots. Uh, I like that understanding of sterizo. 
you know, when we've been into battle, fighting battles can make us feel shaken. Can even at times make us feel somewhat uprooted. You ever had an uprooted feeling in your life? And God says, I'm the God of all grace. I specialize in replanting. I I, I specialize in putting the loose roots back in the ground. I promise you this will happen. Uh, if If in the midst of the battle you're thinking, oh no, these roots got loose, don't worry about it. Uh, I'll be I'll be planting them again. Trust me. Keep going in the battle. He will confirm us. And he will strengthen us. The Greek word here means to give movement back. Uh, think rehab, where something's been done, and now you're going through rehab because you're, you're trying to strengthen and get the movement and mobility back to wherever that injury was. God is saying that to us. We already know he's going to give us strength in the battle. We're talking aftermath now. And he says, listen, I'm in the process of strengthening you. And I am going to get the movement back. I'll get you back to normal. He said, well, I don't feel very normal right now. I can remember uh, sitting in that hospital bed after my four-way bypass and saying, I just don't feel good. You know, it's just, you know, will I ever be normal? And when will these tubes come out? Uh, my brother Tim more recently had the tubes in too. So it's like, I can remember that feeling very dramatically. And, and it helps me to understand this. Because God says, no, I'm going to get your movement back. I, I specialize, no matter what seemed to have been the damage, in getting your movement back. Getting it back. I will get you back to normalcy. I will get you back to life and ministry and my time until I choose to take you, and which is better, according to, according to Paul, far better to be with the Lord than here. But God is in the business of strengthening us, getting the movement back. I love these images, don't you? He says, listen, this spiritual battle, which really beats us up. He says, look what I do in my grace. And then he says, I will establish you. Literally, I will lay the foundation. So it's a good thing, Lord, a lot of bombs going on. The foundations here seem to be being broken up. And, and God says, yeah, I know all that, but hey, I speak things into being. I, I will lay another foundation for you. That's what I specialize in. I'm the God of grace. I'm not pulling you out of the world yet. I'm not pulling you out of the battlefield. But it's no problem for me to build another foundation here. Don't worry about what happened to the old one. Here's a new one. I was thinking of that restoring and confirming and strengthening and establishing. And I couldn't help but think of that great hymn, How Firm a Foundation is Laid. I was gonna, let me read you some of these words. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in God's excellent word. What more could be said than to you God has said? To you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. Fear not, I am with thee. O be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, and God has plans, us being in these battlefields, uh, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be near thee, thy troubles to bless, to sanctify thee, In thy deepest distress. 
When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus has learned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, and that's what our enemy's trying to do, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. I believe that hymn writer happened to have been spending some time in First Peter chapter 5. How about you? you know? And not just there, because these truths just permeate the scriptures. Then he ends in verse 11 with this real quickly. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. A final reminder in the midst of this battlefield, getting rid of all of the false ideas people have about it, giving us the real ideas, a sober batch of truths, uh, hopeful. But then he says, to him be the dominion forever and ever. We are on the winning side. Hey, there's no question how this war is turning out. We're on the winning side. He is the one who has the true dominion. That's the reason that word is used. His kingdom never ends. And Christ returns. That millennial kingdom will be seen. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth after that in which his dominion over all is absolutely demonstrated. Satan tries to trick us into thinking he controls. Or maybe trick us into thinking maybe some of the outcomes still up in doubt. And God says, no, no. Uh, I got the dominion. I got it. I'm the Lord of history. It's going to unfold the way I'm letting it unfold. You say, well, could you let it unfold with maybe not having me on the front line for a while? And God says, no. No. When you're off the front line, you're with me. There's no other places. You're on the front line until you're with him. And so, okay, if I've got to be a front line person, then I better pay attention to this stuff and find the grace because, Lord, I need restored and confirmed and strengthened and established. I need the victory in the inescapable warfare. I like the way Paul or Peter ends this. Amen. <laughs> so be it. Uh, can you say amen? amen? Yeah. So be it. Oh, Lord, so be it. Well, Lord willing, next time we'll... Finish our study of First Peter. A couple verses left. Hopefully it can be one week worth, but we'll see. But uh, we'll try to get to that. Uh, given, the, given the time, uh, I want to read, instead of singing together, I want to read to you Psalm 32.7, which we would have been singing as a final song. Psalm 32.7 says, Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. You will compass me about with songs of deliverance. And what time I'm afraid, I'll trust in thee. Review Psalm 32.7. What a great song. Certainly applicable to all of this. Isn't it wonderful that we have a God who never leaves us? What more could we want? 
I want to be in the battle if he's with me, then out of the battle if he's not. How about you? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for the reality it gives us, the clear picture, but the hope and the promise. Help us to be realistic believers. Realistic not because we are so sharp, but realistic because we listen to what you say. Be transforming our minds. We'll thank you for doing that. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Good to have you here today, brothers and sisters, and